If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10? Mark, chapter 10, continuing on in the series of Rhythms of Grace, and we're looking at service this morning. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Pony Express. The Pony Express was operated from April 1860 to November 1861. Young men rode horseback carrying mail from St. Joseph's, Missouri to Sacramento, California. Donald Whitney writes in his book on the spiritual disciplines, being a rider for the Pony Express was a tough job. You were expected to ride 75 to 100 miles a day, changing horses every 15 to 20 miles. Other than mail, the only baggage you carried contained a few provisions, including a kit of flour, cornmeal, and bacon. Well, if you got bacon, that's all you need, right? In case of danger, you also had a medical pack of turpentine, borax, and cream tartar. tartar. In, in order to travel light and to increase speed of mobility during Indian attacks... The men always rode in shirt sleeves, even during the fierce winter weather. He goes on to say, how would you recruit volunteers for this hazardous job? In 1860, San Francisco newspaper printed this ad for the Pony Express. Wanted, young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders willing to risk daily Orphans preferred. Whitney goes on to say, we need to be honest with the facts about the discipline of serving God. Like the Pony Express, serving God is not a job for the casually interested. It's costly service. He asks for your life. He asks for service to him to become a priority, not a pastime. He doesn't want servants who will give him the leftovers of their life's commitments. Serving God isn't a short-term responsibility either. I remember when Jesus first revealed himself to me, and I felt a little like Paul the Apostle at that time in my life where to live was Christ. Jesus was all I thought about. Jesus was all I wanted to serve and live for. Uh, I would do anything for him. I would go anywhere for him. I would say anything. I just wanted to be used no matter how big or how small. But life happens, doesn't it? We get busy. We get consumed with our life. And if we're not careful, our service to Jesus can take the back seat. Maybe you've just been serving for so long that you're kind of weary. We can be busy, and because we're busy, we decide to pick and choose how we'll serve him based on our preferences, our likes, our dislikes, forgetting that serving Jesus is never about our preferences or about our likes or our dislikes. And I want to say something here as well. Serving Jesus and serving others is not ultimately about fulfilling your spiritual gift. 
We don't need a spiritual gift to clean the toilets at the church, do we? I mean, I, I don't know. I probably need someone to teach you what kind of cleanser to use, but probably don't need a spiritual gift. In our text this morning, James and John come to Jesus asking him if he could do something for them based on how they think they should serve Jesus, the king, when he's enthroned in all his glory. And Jesus uh, doesn't give them an earful at their request, ripping into them for their warped thinking. Rather, he seeks to define what a true servant of his looks like, and then he demonstrates servanthood. So let's read the text together. Mark 10, beginning at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand For my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones uh, exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help me this morning. I pray that... uh, that your word would, that you would illumine your word, that your word would become alive to us, and that it would awaken our hearts, uh, that your word would magnify Jesus, and the effect of our gathering this morning would be that we leave more in love with Jesus and more wanting to serve you and to serve others for your great glory. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 32 tells us that they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and uh, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, 
And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And then almost immediately, it seems that they never even heard a word that Jesus said in verse 35. James and John, the son of Zebedee, come up to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us what we ask. I know a lot of Christians that have that kind of relationship with Jesus. If Jesus is doing for us what we ask, then I'll serve him. If it's convenient, I'll serve him. As long as things are going smoothly in my life, he gets some of my time and some of my money and some of my resources and some of my gifts. Verse 36 Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left hand in glory. By this time, James and John believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah who's going to go to Jerusalem to restore the glory of the fallen throne of David. And so their ask is that, Jesus, when this takes place, we want one wants to sit on your right and one wants to sit on your left. This, is, this should be... A great request. But they didn't seem to hear anything that Jesus was saying minutes before their ask. And this wasn't the first time that he tells them that he'll be treated with contempt and then put to death. As a matter of fact, this is the third time. We read in Mark eight thirty one, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then again in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, it tells us that Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And verse 32 in Mark 9 tells us that they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Minutes later, the disciples were having a dispute after who would be the greatest. This is after the second time that Jesus tells them, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they're having a discussion about who would be the greatest. In in Mark 9, 33, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The disciples are arguing as to who would be the greatest in Mark 9. These disciples were probably Peter, James, and John, as they were the ones that had just witnessed moments before Jesus transfigured before their very eyes. After all, Jesus, it seemed to include Peter, James, and John in this innermost circle of disciples. But what's so interesting about Peter, James, and John arguing over who's the greatest is is that now only just days later, James and John's request, it's, it's the same thing in this text. Their ask is for greatness. Their ask is for position. Um, and it happens right after Jesus tells them again of his soon death that he's about to face. So in verse 38, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. What seems to be on full display is Jesus versus the disciples on a completely different wavelength, in a completely different stratosphere. 
there seems to be selfish ambition for the purpose of self-exaltation going on with these disciples, thinking we're the right guys that need to sit there. Maybe they, maybe they were aware of their gifts and how they fit in with the other 12, thinking that we really would be the two best guys to sit on Jesus' side. There was probably some, some comparison going on, maybe influenced by the five Ps, power, possessions, Position, prestige, productivity, thinking, hey, um, we know who we are and we know how to control things. Um, You know, our our rank in the pecking order, we understand where we would fit best there. Um, You know, prestige, who and how many looked up to us. Productivity, what and how much we accomplish. Jesus, we seem to be the right guys for the job. These guys have a twisted cultural view of greatness looks like, and Jesus is about to graciously adjust their perspective once again. I love that about Jesus, don't you? Because so often I have a twisted cultural view of what all kinds of things look like, and Jesus comes to me over and over again, and he graciously adjusts me. Verse 38, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You have a desire for greatness, but you don't really know what true greatness is. A request for glory is a request for suffering. A request for glory is a request for suffering. It's about dying to oneself. I have two points this morning, and my first point is this, greatness defined. Greatness defined. In verses 42 and 44, Jesus defines greatness. And he called them to him, and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but who But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Here Jesus defines greatness as serving others for the glory of God. Serving others for the glory of God. Now, the disciples struggle with it in their day, and we struggle it within within our day Culturally, we define greatness as nothing like this. If you want to be great, you step all over people to become great. Jesus defines greatness as serving others for the glory of God. For no other reason, no hidden or secret agenda, just serving others for the glory of God. Now, William Hendricks writes in his commentary, About in Mark 10, he says this, Jesus is saying that in the kingdom over which he reigns, greatness is obtained by pursuing a course of action which is the exact opposite of that which is followed in the unbelieving world. Greatness consists in self-giving, in the outpouring of the self in service to others for the glory of God. To be great means to love. It's the exact 
opposite that the course of this world is following. Greatness consists in self-giving, in the outpouring of service, in self to others for the glory of God. Serving Jesus and serving others for God's glory is hard work, isn't it? I mean, does anybody just find it sometimes it's hard work? I don't, I don't know about you, but often I, I sit down and I begin to think about people that I love, and I think about people in the church that, that, that I have the privilege to serve. And sometimes you, you can just quickly be overwhelmed by the amount of serving opportunities. Serving is hard work, and anyone who tells you differently is crazy, is on something. Serving others every day, all day, is hard work. Paul describes his service to God with these words in Colossians 1.29. Listen to this. To this end, I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And that word labor means to work to the point of exhaustion. Paul is saying, he he says, in my service to God, I labor. I'm, I'm working, I'm serving to the point of exhaustion. Now, now, I think there's this beautiful thing. It was a couple years ago where the Lord was really dealing with me about all kinds of things. Because I think sometimes in our desire to serve, we can, we, can, we, we can get the kind of Messiah complex where we just think we need to be, we need to be the Messiah. We need to be the Savior for everyone. And, and, and that's, that's a terrible thing. But, but what we need to realize is, is that as we, we're aware of needs and we're aware of things and God calls us to serve, I think we need to serve with the str- in the strength that he alone provides. And, and, and something he taught me a couple years ago was that, that verse in Matthew eleven twenty eight where Jesus says, come to me if you're weary and you're heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And you're thinking, oh, that's beautiful. I just need to come to Jesus. He's going to give me rest. But then the next verse says, take my yoke on you. It's like, what? Rest and yoke? That's, that rest and yoke does not go together. Yoke is about work, and Jesus says, come and find rest. But then Jesus says, get yoked with me. And and being yoked with Jesus, he teaches us restful work. He teaches us as the bigger ox, who's the one who is able to do the will of the Father perfectly when we join him and we go with Jesus we learn how to do restful work as opposed... So our serving yoked with Jesus is restful serving. And then we, we, we have this ability to go, hey, I can't do this. I should do this. I should go with Jesus. Jesus, where are you going today? We, we respond. We listen to divine appointments because we, we're mindful of, oh, this would be a, a great opportunity for me. God wants to use me in this way today. And so understanding restful work, understanding being yoked with Jesus, we learn from him, and we work hard, we, we labor, we, 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 it, this is hard work to the point of exhaustion, and yet we're finding that it's restful work, it's, it's joy in Jesus Christ. Now, we're called to serve our family, 
from the morning we wake up, my morning often looks like I'm up. I, I get up at crazy times in the morning because I'm old and I don't know how to sleep anymore. And so I get up early and then I have coffee and I read my Bible and I hang out with Jesus. And then I hear little buddy causing a ruckus at like 5.30 or 6 in the morning in his crib. And I go get him up and then I, I, I cuddle and have a baba with my buddy. And then I don't have a baba. But we we cuddle and and then and then and then life happens and the kids get up and I empty the dishwasher and I help make lunches and then you know we're we're you're just doing so many things and then it's like this buzzing at eight fifteen the door closes and like that was unbelievable. And it doesn't end because then you get up and you go to your place of work. And whether it's me being a pastor or you at your places of work, and, and maybe that's just home now because nobody can go to work anymore. Uh, what, whatever it is, you're, 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 there's this constant thing that there's, there's things that need to happen. The kingdom of God needs to advance and things need to happen. And so you're thinking of your church family, you're thinking of your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors. Add to this whoever else you're thinking about right now. And you're overwhelmed. As a matter of fact, I think there's so many opportunities to serve that if we're not careful, we, we get overwhelmed and then we just pull back and we just say, I'm just not going to serve because I'm, I, you know, when 75 things hit you at once in the face, sometimes it's just, you just get so overwhelmed, you just think, you just shut down. It's like, maybe I can't even do this at all. In the church, it's said, of the church, and this is not Crossridge, but the church at large, 20% of the church does 80% of the work. Why is that? Jesus defines greatness, serving others for the glory of God. But he doesn't leave it there. He then demonstrates what true greatness looks like. My second point is greatness demonstrated. Listen to this. Our service, our service, all of our service is the evidence of his sacrifice. All of our service. May we never forget that all of our service is the evidence of Christ's sacrifice. Listen, you nor I would have no desire to serve others for the glory of God had Jesus Christ not awakened our hearts to who he was and who and what he has done for us. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. John Stott writes, this was the perspective of Jesus on his death. Despite the great importance of his teaching, his example, and his works of compassion and power, None of these were central to his mission. What dominated his mind was not the living, but the giving of his life. The final self-sacrifice was his hour for which he had come into the world. Jesus is aware that he will drink this cup. 
that he, he is aware of the cup that he's going to drink, of the baptism of which he will be baptized that Mark mentions in verse 39. I believe this is speaking of Jesus being plunged into the depths of horrible distress where the father turns his face away from the son. And yet Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem. Remember verse 32? He's out front and he's leading the way. Jesus knows what is ahead of him in Jerusalem, but he's out front and he's leading the way. What's going to happen to him in Jerusalem? Verse 45 tells us he's going to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to give his life in exchange for or in place of. Here we see the substitutionary atonement of Christ in full view. Holy God in exchange for sinful man. A ransom must be paid or there is no remission of sin. The ransom was a price paid to liberate a slave. And here we see in this text a divine rescue taking place. John Stott speaks about verse 45 and says this, The death of Jesus means that there happened to him what would have happened to the many, hence he takes their place. Willingly, he gave. No one took it from him. Voluntarily, Jesus laid down his life to pay the ransom price for my sins and for your sins. Jesus freely embraced the purpose of his father for the salvation of sinners as it had been revealed in scripture. And in view of such an awesome demonstration of true greatness, the question for us is how could we do anything less than serve for the glory of God? How could we do anything less than serve for his great glory? He broke the curse of sin so that we might now serve one another. Something we would never do on our own, left to ourselves. I know how much selfish ambition and how much vain glory and conceit and how much I love myself. And I know you love yourself too. And left to ourselves, we would do all the loving on ourselves, wouldn't we? When I was much younger and, and had two kids, I said, and I was 20 years old, I had the first kid, I don't know, 17 months apart, so I guess. By the time I'm 22, I got two kids. Don't want any more kids. You know, kids are going to be inconvenienced and difficult and trouble. Don't want any more kids. That's how I believed back then. Going to get it over with, and now we're going to be, I'm going to be like 39 or 40, and woohoo, live the rest of my life just, just for me. I was a Christian. Love Jesus. I think I was actually even a pastor. Whew. Some really bad teaching. And then, a, then a, another baby came. We don't know how it happened, but a baby, another baby came. Ten years later, Jesus is always at work in me. Hear his gentleness come and say, Pat, you're, you're such a proud, 
proud dude. You just love yourself. You love your life. You love, you love con- convenience. And I think I should, I think I should, I think you should adopt. I looked at my wife. I said, love, I, I think we, I think we're supposed to adopt. And she's like, tears just went like out projectile tears. She'd been praying for 10 years that that, that would happen. And, and the Lord finally got a hold of me. And so we, we took it. A child, and then a year later, we took another child, and, and then I read a book by David Platt called Radical Together, and then <sighs> heard about fostering and adopting, and my heart was ripped, and the Lord, eight years later, said, you're still too proud, and you love yourself, and you love your life too much, and <clears throat> I think you need to take a few few kids, and, and we just keep taking kids, and The joy, the joy of understanding that all we have and all we've been given because Jesus Christ stood in my place for my sin and I will never know a day of his judgment or his wrath over my life. All I will ever know is steadfast love and unending kindness in spite of me. If that isn't enough motivation to give your life away to serve to serve him with, with all your heart. And I don't know what it is. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. Paul in Galatians 2 reminded the Galatians that, that he said, I'm crucified with Christ. It's not me, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life is about us being crucified with Christ in the life that we live. We live, we live for him. We live amazed that he would save us, that he would ransom us, that he would step in and die in our place for our sin. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 84. Verse 10 is my favorite verse in that psalm where it says a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. One day. One day. Psalmist writes, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The doorkeeper was the guy who was in charge of the gate. It was the furthest extremity of the temple. The doorkeeper has only the faintest glimpses of the temple glories. He hears the least of his music. He tastes little of its delicacies. And yet this psalmist is more content on the doorstep than dwelling in tents of wickedness. Why? Doorkeepers indicated here are the sons of Korah, position of grace, I believe it speaks of. Listen, from the introduction of this psalm, and you see in the heading, the top of Psalm 84, we understand that it was for the sons of Korah. Their ancestor, Korah, was the one who led the rebellion uh, against Moses in number 16. Korah was jealous because the honors of the priesthood had been given exclusively to Aaron. He felt that his service in the temple was inferior and so rebelled with Dathan and Abram and and the earth opened up and swallowed them. Fire went out from God and consumed 250 others. The next morning, 14,700 members of the murmuring congregation were destroyed 
by plague. And Korah's sons later became prominent in the Levitical service, so they had obviously separated themselves from their father's jealous act of rebellion. These these sons, these sons of Korah had an attitude of gratitude. They were happy just to bear burdens, to open doors for the Lord in appreciation for his mercy. Are we this morning amazed at God's mercy shown to us through the cross? And if we are, then let it show, let the evidence show that we are amazed by his mercy by the way we serve one another to the glory of God. Are you amazed that God would reveal himself to you? That you have a relationship with God? That that you were once his enemy and object of wrath, but today all you know is his kindness? Let that reality position where he position you where he has called you to be. Let that reality cause you to cry out, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to serve your church wherever you place me for your glory alone. And you know what? There's a lot of real nasty jobs that need to get done that's not flashy, that's not impressive, and people might not even recognize you doing it. But oh, he recognizes. Because when you're doing it for his glory alone, he receives much praise and much honor and much glory. I close with a prayer from John Piper, if that's okay. From his book called Don't Waste Your Life. And it was four pages long, so I took some pieces of the prayer. Listen to this. Oh, Father, grant your church to love your glory more than gold, to cease her love affair with comfort and security. Grant that we seek the kingdom first and let the other things come as you will. Grant that we move towards need and not toward ease. Grant that the firm finality of our security in Christ free us to risk our homes and health and money on the earth. Help us to see that if we try to guard our wealth instead of using it to show it's not our God, then we will waste our lives however we succeed. Forbid that any Lord who read these words would have to say someday, I've wasted it. But grant by your almighty spirit and your piercing word that we who name Christ as the Lord would treasure him above our lives and feel deep in our souls that Christ is life and death is gain. And so may we display his worth for all to see. And by our prizing him, May he be praised in all the world. May he be magnified in life and death. May every neighbor and nation see joy in Jesus, frees his people from the power of greed and fear. Let love flow from your saints, and may it, Lord, be this, that even if it costs our lives, the people will be glad in God. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Take your honored place, O Christ, as the all-satisfying treasure of the world. With trembling hands before the throne of God and utterly 
dependent upon your grace, we lift our voice and make this solemn vow. As God lives and is all I ever need, I will not waste my life through Jesus Christ. Amen. Our service is the evidence of his sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for Crossridge. Thank you for this church. And so I've had the privilege of being here over the past couple of years. I see the joy in the faces of those who constantly serve you and love you. Um, thank you for that. Their serving is the evidence of your sacrifice. We we ask that you would you would help us even more to teach us what it looks like to serve others for the glory of God alone. And and forgive us for how often we we pass by a serving opportunity just because it's hard or it's not something that we prefer. Give us give us hearts that are just willing to, to go and to be used where you want us to to be used. Help us to get in that yoke with you and be yoked with you and and learn restful work, restful serving others for your glory. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.